turn on my microphone. There we go. Thank you, Seth. Uh, we will be in Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel chapter 1, and we'll be looking at uh, verses 4 all the way to the end. Uh, just another thing, just a quick note, uh, I forgot my glasses tie, so my glasses will probably be prone to falling, so if that becomes a distraction, look away. Uh, I hope uh, I'll remember it next time, uh, but hopefully uh, this will never happen again. Um, with that said, let's read Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 through 28. Ezekiel 1, verses 4 through 20, 28. This is the vision of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 1, verse 4. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of, the, uh, from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had human likenesses, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and their soles of the calf, uh, their soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings on the four sides they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. And as the likenesses of their face, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the face, uh, and the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wings of another, while two covered their bodies, and each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures started to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside each of the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like, gleaming, like the gleaming of barrel. And the four had the same lightness, their appearance and construction being as it were a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of the four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome. And the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went. And the wheels rose along with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels." When those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, these wheels rose along with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, and each one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, and the sound of the waters like the sound of the Almighty, of a sound of the tumult like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And, when, and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads was like the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness of a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw it as were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And down for what, for what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of a bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the likeness of the, uh, I'm sorry, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Let us pray. Father, we just read a passage in which is difficult to conceptualize, difficult to read, 
One uh, that seems so very foreign and far away. And Father, as, uh, as through uh, the typical preparation of study, uh, Lord, I ask that you would enable me to be able to detail for uh, your people and for myself what is clearly laid out here. But more importantly, Father, Lord, that your word being attended with uh, conscionable uh, speech, uh, that it's understood by us, your people, Lord, let your spirit attend with it. Lord, let your spirit attend with the words that are being uh, set forth in this evening service. That we, your people, would hear of these things. That we would understand the vision of Ezekiel. And Lord, like Ezekiel at the very end, that we would fall prostrate before you in worship. Lord, help us now as we begin to unearth these complex things. Be with us in our minds, in our hearts, and in our souls. And Lord, we ask that your blessing would be upon us. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen. Like many of you, I have a very interesting father-in-law. But I would argue that I had the most interesting of all time. He likes to push my buttons since I'm the so-called preacher man in the family. So he gives me little things to think about whenever I come and visit him. Sometimes simply to annoy me, and sometimes in good cheer. But by far his favorite thing to mention to me is how the Bible teaches us that aliens are among us. You see, like many people in his age bracket, and hopefully he's listening, he loves the History Channel. In the History Channel, there's this little show called Ancient Aliens. This television show postulates that humanity, our, our origins, our history, has been greatly influenced by ancient extraterrestrial life forms meddling in human affairs. Now, this science fiction is laughable, of course. It's quite funny to, to uh, gaze at. But more to the point, this show will take the most bizarre and strange texts from religious communities to argue that aliens had their hand in the creation of religion or acted as some divine encounter, right? In the text that we just read, many people believe that Ezekiel's vision was a vision of an alien spacecraft. Yes, a spacecraft. Now, Christians obviously know that this is silly, of course, but I would argue that Christians can often import strange inferences like this into the text that we just read. But for the close reader of the Bible, when we read this text, we should affirm, yes, this is a glorious and otherworldly passage, but it is also very, very familiar. That's what I want us to see tonight. What we're seeing tonight is not something that's out of the sky, as it were. But it's actually something very clear, something that has been repeated over and over again throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. What we see here tonight is really the, the entire voice of the Old Testament Scriptures as we had at this point in Ezekiel, at, at the time of Ezekiel's writing, is that this is actually the culmination of all the literature that, that comes forth. This strange, clunky passage is not describing... Uh, is not describing imagery that we haven't seen before. I want us to see that this imagery in Ezekiel's vision is familiar, and this familiar imagery will remind us of God's glory that has already been described throughout the Old Testament Bible. So we can break up this vision in three large parts. We'll look at the four living creatures. Well, uh, our second point, we'll look at the wheels and the expanse. And don't worry, I'll repeat these. And three, the throne and the rainbow. So first point, the four living creatures. Two, the wheels and the expanse. And three, the throne and the rainbow. But before we get into these three points, I believe if we look at the first verse in our passage and compare it uh, with others in scriptures, then we'll be better prepared for what comes. In verse four, Ezekiel sees this storm cloud that has flashing fire in the midst of it. Now, this imagery should be immediately apparent, apparent to us. God has often used the imagery of a cloud of fire to depict his presence. This should be the first and natural reference to Ezekiel's vision. 
But I want us to compare what Ezekiel sees inside the glory cloud vision with what another prophet saw in his vision during the same period of exile. In Daniel 7, you don't have to turn there, but in Daniel 7, Daniel sees God and the Son of Man come in clouds. Verse 13. In Daniel, in Daniel 7, verse 9, we read this. As I had looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery, uh, the throne was, uh, was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. What we should see is that inside the cloud is a fiery throne on wheels, with wheels that is. The basic idea of this throne was that it was a war chariot. And this chariot was used by God to descend from heaven to execute justice against his enemies. I want us to have this idea of war chariot when we look at Ezekiel's vision. And that he saw this chariot inside the cloud, but we get much more detail about it. One other preliminary point is this. We get more detail from Ezekiel than any other prophet because Ezekiel, and this is important, was trained as a priest to write down significant details. He was detail-oriented, especially when it came to uh, theophanies, appearances of God. I want us to see how each of our three points, the four living creatures, the wheels in the expanse, and the throne and rainbow are all just different elements of God's war chariot that Ezekiel describes in priestly terms. So with this big picture in view, let us get after the details of what this chariot looks like. So first, the four living creatures, and probably our largest point for this evening. Ezekiel describes in verses 5 through 14 the four living creatures. Now, in chapter 10 of Ezekiel, the four living creatures are called cherubim, or cherubs. Now, when we typically think of cherubs, we think of those little babies, you know, the fat babies, they look like my daughter and had like the wings on them. That's not what cherubs look like, right? That's not the biblical view of cherubs at all. I that made that up on the fly because that, that's actually pretty uncanny. Um, in chapter 10 of Ezekiel, the four living creatures are called cherubim or cherubs. Uh, I'll use a, that, those term, that terminology interchangeably throughout. Cherubs are angelic creatures that we find in certain areas of the Bible. The first is in the Garden of Eden after the fall. God places the cherubim to guard against sinful man from entering into the garden. And another place that we find cherubs is in the imagery of the tabernacle found throughout Exodus and Numbers. And we also see this imagery uh, uh, of cherubs in the temple in Kings and Chronicles. Cherubs were made into figurines and worked into patterns of the tabernacle curtains and the walls of the temple. With just these few references, what we should see is that these cherubs signify the holy presence of God. You know, in my simplistic mind, I think of cherubs as like the secret service of God, right? Definitely not babies with wings. They're the secret service of God. Wherever God revealed himself in his heavenly regalia, cherubs are right there to defend off and to fend off anything that would disgust God and his holiness. I think this bodyguard imagery is helpful because the cherubs are enraged in this vision as being in a tight formation. I'm not quite sure what I'm doing here. I'm sorry, brother. If I had to scream, I had to scream. I've done that before. Y'all remember, I get really sweaty then. All right. This bodyguard imagery is helpful for us to have in the back of our head because within this vision, uh, we, we see these references. Cherubs were established and what they look like. One commentator suggests that the cherubs, uh, one commentator suggests that the cherubs were guarding God's throne that this imagery that we have of the cherubs guarding God's throne is the heavenly equivalent to the earthly ark that was guarded by the ancient Israelite priest. In Numbers 2, in Numbers chapter 2, we're told that the tribes of Israel camped around and marched with the ark and the tabernacle, with the tabernacle being in the center during the wilderness period. So Israel was commanded by God to set up this four-walled formation, right? There's these four walls. 
made up of the Israelite tribes in order that they might fend off the enemies of God. In this way, Israel acted as the four walls of God's holy domain that was on earth, the ark and the tabernacle. Like the cherubs protecting God's throne in this vision, Israel was to repel God's enemies out of the camp and away from the holiness of the tabernacle, away from God's holy domain. So with this battle formation in mind, this four-wall battle formation in mind, we can delve into some of the features of the cherubs. These four cherubs had the basic body of a human being, and each of the cherubs had two sets of wings, and one that expanded out to make a wall formation uh, with the other, uh, with one another. Uh, this is so difficult to explain, even when I'm trying to explain it. Uh, in your order of worship today, I had Chris send you a picture of this. It's a sermon aid. So if you have that on your phone, uh, and I did slightly alter it, you know, just for our convictional reasons, um, but it might help with conceptualization. It's, I believe, the third or fourth uh, scroll through. So this, this is what is being presented, is that this idea of them being set up in this four-walled uh, formation with their wings out is that their one set of their wings is making this wall, while the other have uh, the wings down by their side, and those are the ones that they flew with. The cherubs also had calf feet. Now, the depiction of a human body with calf feet and wings would be familiar to any Israelite priest. This was the common depiction of cherubs that would be on the walls of the tabernacle or temple. But what is unique in Ezekiel's vision is that each of the four cherubs had four faces, one of a human, an ox, a lion, and an eagle. To summarize, these creatures represented each of the major categories of God's earthly domain. The human face represented mankind, of course. The ox represented uh, domesticated creatures. The lion represented undomesticated creatures. And the eagle represented flying creatures. Each of the faces pointed in each direction, each cardinal direction, north, south, east, and west. What we are to see is that each being, each cherub, was fully prepared and engaged in battle. Nothing in all the creation, whether domesticated or undomesticated beasts, whether human beings or flying birds, nothing in all of creation would get past these bodyguards. Nothing would get past God's holy secret service. They were ready, these cherubs, to defend the honor and holiness of God. One final detail about these creatures is that they sparkled like burnished bronze, or their appearance was like burning coals of fire and like torches of fire moving across the creatures. The wording of Ezekiel used here is most likely influenced by his training as a priest. Remember that the tabernacle and the temple had bronze-plated utensils and ornaments and that it was incredibly dark in both the tabernacle and the temple. The only source of light was from lampstands and this light would bounce off the utensils, these bronze utensils and ornaments, in a glittering fashion. This glimmering metal look would include the cherubs on top of the ark and the embroidered cherubs on the walls. So Ezekiel's vision evokes the idea of these moving bronze ornamental statues defending God. This, this is glorious, you know, high-tier stuff, but it's highly influenced by Ezekiel's training. I can't help when I think of these glimmering statues. Uh, of, I can't think of that little uh, lampstick from Beauty and the Beast. I believe his name is Lumiere. Is that right? Is that right? Amen? All right. I can't help but think of him because it's kind of a similar fashion. It's this ornamental creature that has come to life. Ezekiel's vision is like the tabernacle or the temple coming to life before his very eyes. Now with these details given in a little bit more context, I hope we are beginning to see how Ezekiel is alluding again and again to the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. His priestly training is able to detail for us this glorious vision. And he is using his training to show us what God's heavenly presence resembled. And naturally, God used the imagery of battle-ready cherubs to depict his holiness. 
And Ezekiel, who knows this imagery, who understands the allusions to the animals, to the specific directions, the battle formations, he would naturally remember the commands and formations of the wilderness wanderings of the Old Testament. He he would remember how God called Israel to be this cherubic nation, as it were. Israel was called to be a nation on guard against any attack to God's holiness, to his honor, to his fame. Ezekiel would remember how God's cherubs protected the tabernacle when it was set up. Ezekiel would remember these things, and when he saw this vision, he saw what his man-made temple and priestly images all pointed to. All of what he trained in, all the utensils, all the, all the fine embroidery, it was just simply a, a picture a glorious picture of a grander, glorious image that was now before him in his vision of God. All the pomp and glory of the ceremonial imagery of the Torah, all of it was merely a taste of the true heavenly realities that lay behind them in the angelic heavenly realm. Brothers, that was a lot of information I threw at you, I know. And there are some more details that we can scratch in this section. But I do want us to take something home here. And to drive home this point, we need to remember this. Remember what the ark was called in the Old Testament. It's called God's footstool. But what Ezekiel is seeing in this vision is God's throne chariot. Not the footstool, but the throne chariot. The ark was supposed to be, if we're, if we're reading this right, and I believe I am, that's why I'm preaching it to you. The ark was the earthly counterpart of what is depicted in the heavenly realm, in the heavenly domain. And when Ezekiel saw this vision, he would see how far from the mark Israel failed in comparison to his heavenly counterpart. You see, rather than expel the corruption and pollution from God's presence, Israel let that wickedness in. Even to the point of polluting the temple, of polluting the earthly picture of God's holiness. Rather than be like the angelic guard, the cherubic guard, defending the glory of God faithfully, Israel acted like demons, polluting all that is in its reach. And remember that Ezekiel was a priest. Priests were ordered directly by God to protect and rightly order his temple. But here is Ezekiel, thousands of miles away from the temple in Babylon. Here is Ezekiel, exiled with his people. And he comes face to face with his perfect heavenly counterpart, the cherubim. How humbly it must, how humbling It must have been to stand before the mighty presence of God and His angelic hosts when you yourself have failed so mightily in the task that God has called you to. Brothers, the Christian church is likewise called to a similar warlike mentality. We're called to be the cherubic nation, but not with flesh and blood, but through spiritual warfare. As God's covenant people, He has set His presence upon us by indwelling us with His Spirit, just as He did with the cherubim. And He has called us to be His priest. If you would, please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. In this passage, Peter contrasts how Christians are to behave against those who reject Christ and delight in this world. Christians are not to behave in this way. They are not to engage the world in this way, but they are called to something radically different. So first, uh, I'm sorry, first Peter chapter two, and we'll start at verse nine. First Peter two nine. When you, Christians, you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So see what Peter's doing here. By placing their identity as God's unique people, God's priest in holy service, Peter exhorts us, Christians, to guard the presence of God through our conduct and action. We are to honor God's holiness among us, just as the cherubim and just as Israel was called to do. And even as exiles who feel out of place in this world, we are still to guard God's holiness manifested by His presence with us. And we guard God's presence. We guard the holiness bestowed to us in Christ Jesus. By Christ coming upon us. By by Christ coming to us in the glorious array of the gospel. In that radiant splendor. He is presented to us and He makes us holy. And it is in that glorious relation to Christ. It is in the relation of our gospel relation to Him, uh, to God in Christ. We guard that holiness, and we guard it by living in love and honor for our God. We were called to be holy, brothers and sisters. We are called to be holy and to wage spiritual warfare on this world. Not to let it in. Not to let our ranks be shrunk back through ungodliness in the spirit of this age. But we do it by proclaiming the gospel by proclaiming the excellencies of Him who has called us into marvelous light. I think this is a glorious saying. It's this idea of rather than being on outside of the vision, you go to the inside of the vision where all that gleaming metal look was, where all the bronze and glorious array of light are. Rather than being on the outside of the vision, you go into the inside of the vision. You go to be where God is, and you go to guard His holy presence. May we heed this call, brothers and sisters. And when we see him, our Christ, our Lord, our God, in this same vision of glory on the day of his visitation, may we be found as those who serve Christ faithfully. Amen? Amen. So let's move on to our second main point. I want us to look at the details concerning the wheels and the expanse. And really, this is really talking about the, the categories of the chariot in particular. I really want to talk about it. The chariot. So verses 15 through 21 detail uh, the wheels. And verses 22 through 25 describe what we will call the expanse for now. First, let's take a look at the four wheels. There is a wheel uh, assigned to each of the cherubs. So there are four wheels. And I believe that Ezekiel is trying to say that the cherubs had control over the wheels, that they were pulling, quote-unquote, the ark, uh, or I'm sorry, the, the, the chariot, as it were. Um, they were pulling the Lord's chariot as they guarded it. Wherever the cherubs went, the wheels attended them. These wheels are described as a wheel within a wheel, which is most likely a reference to the inner wheel, inner circle of the wheel, where the Uh, where typically an axle would go, like in a typical chariot. Most people think of these gyroscopic, weird-looking things. This is where people bring in the ideas of UFOs and whatnot, and it gets really weird and awkward. No, don't, don't bring that in. It's a wheel. It's just a plain wheel. These wheels are described as this wheel within the wheel, and it's just a plain wheel, not some gyroscopic device. Though these wheels could move wherever the spirit and the cherubs decided, they never actually turned or rotated. Uh, I believe this is significant because uh, it adds and it shows us that the chariot was effortless, uh, in which the cherubim escorted the, the God's, uh, escorted God's chariot. It was effortless. They, they didn't require anything of it. It was an effortless action. The cherubs did not tire or weaken as those priests entrusted to carry the ark, the tabernacle, or its furniture in the wilderness. But unlike the ark that had to be carried by hand, the cherubs had wheels to escort the Lord wherever he wished. Though though we should naturally see a connection to priests and the ark, the wheels help us connect to this vision, the idea of warfare. 
Remember that the ark and the high priest were used by God to give Israel's enemies into their hands, particularly during the conquest of Canaan. So we can think of Eliezer or Phinehas as priests in, uh, in the book of Judges, or, or even in Numbers, or the ark in 1 Samuel. So the idea of war and the ark are closely connected historically in the Bible. And the idea of the ark being compared to a chariot is a natural one and a biblical one. So the cherubim acted as the priests carrying or moving the ark while guarding it themselves. They, they really were the cherubic priests of the heavenly domain. Lastly, many commentators make much of the rims having eyes all around. We, we, you know, the really strange vision that we see here if we take this on face value. Personally, though, I believe this is a failure to consult the Hebrew text. The word uh, for the the Hebrew word for I is used six times in chapter 1 alone. But in all but one case, it is either not translated at all or used for descriptive purposes, such as phrases like gleaming uh, or, or shining. So in verse 18, where the ESV translated, the rims were full of eyes all around. I don't think we should try to conceptualize this fever dream. I mean, that's just, it's weird looking. We should not try and be conceptualizing that. I don't think that there's literal eyes all around these wheels. I think rather what we are to see uh, is something like this. Uh, We can translate it like this. The rims of all four had decoration all around. Or that it was bejeweled all around. What we are to see is that each of these rims were greatly ornamental and decorative. You know, it was a royal war chariot after all. We see also that these were massive wheels that appeared to be made of fine materials like barrel. This simply communicates that this was a royal and grand uh, war chariot for Yahweh. There's more that we could say about about the wheels, but I I digress. Uh, We'll turn now to the expanse. In verses 22 through 25, we see more language of the cherubs and how their movements were described. In verse 24, uh, we read, And they went, the cherubs, and I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. Throughout the Bible, the sounds of armies, uh, whether Israelite or non-Israelite, are compared with catastrophic events like waves crashing or earthquakes, something that we see here. What we are to see is that each of the four cherubs were being compared to a grand army. Again, these cherubs were ferocious creatures ready for battle for the king they served. But in this section, I want us to see uh, that these cherubs were, what the cherubs were supporting above their heads is important, and that's the expanse. So in verse 22 through 25, these war uh, cherubs, or however we can describe them, the secret, holy secret service, however it, it fits best in your mind, uh, I want us to see what they're also carrying. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like all inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads. The word for expanse can be translated as firmament, as in the firmament between the waters above and below. This expanse is described as being spread out above the heads of the cherubim, similar to how a tent or a canopy is spread out. This is a typical way to speak of the sky or the heavens because the Hebrews uh, conceptualized the world as the cosmic tent of the Lord. The sky is described as the tarp of God's tabernacle. Even uh, how this tarp is described here is called, is, uses the language of, of awe-inspiring crystal. And this is evocative of the tabernacle coverings. Uh, here's why. The phrase awe-inspiring crystal is more closely translated to the Hebrew as this, fear-inducing frost. Here's how this connects. This fear-inducing frost is an allusion to how the dark night sky would crack in the Hebrews' minds that they, uh, how the dark uh, Mediterranean nights, they're, they're, the sky would crack and it would bring forth hail upon them. And so it was dark frost. Uh, that, that they conceptualize as the tent of the Lord and it being falling down. And this was a regular phenomenon in the uh, cold Mediterranean nights. 
So then we should see that the tabernacle coverings or tarps imitated the dark night sky here. It imitated the expanse between the heavens above and below, such as what we see in Genesis 1 verse 6. So with all this in mind, I believe what Israel would have seen above the cherubim, uh, what the cherubim were carrying, uh, were carrying, as it were, was something similar to a fully constructed tabernacle tent. The tabernacle had a flat roof, which made a platform for what we would place upon it, what would be placed upon it, and that would be a throne in Ezekiel's vision. And so if we're reading the expanse as an allusion to God's cosmic tabernacle correctly, I want us to see that the heavenly expanse, or this cosmic tent tarp, as I'm going to put a register mark on that, acts as a platform for a throne. That's simply it. It's basically the idea of a, uh, a large rectangular tent being the place for a throne. That's actually uh, the Mediterranean mindset, is that uh, the God, would, God would be placed on top of the tent of the entire cosmos, is that he's placed on top of the cosmic tabernacle that we live in. So then, the top of the earthly tabernacle acted in a similar way with this flat roof. In the wilderness, the pillar of cloud and fire, which is the presence of God, as we said, would appear to Israel directly above the tabernacle. I believe Ezekiel was trying to depict for us in this image of God being above the tabernacle as a platform, possibly like the platform of a chariot, right? The only difference is that this is clearly the the heavenly cosmic tabernacle and not the earthly tabernacle. So with all this in place, all this imagery in place, We should see the cherubim acting as the priestly army, defending the mobile sanctuary of God. By Ezekiel evoking the expanse, this cosmic tabernacle, and God being above the cherubs on this chariot platform, God's transcendent character should be highlighted. By God figuratively placing himself above the cherub and separating himself by the expanse, he is showing that he is even above the most glorious creatures that he has created, that is the cherubs. God is utterly distinct from all his creation, including his most glorious of angelic beings. This should give us pause as we are about to move on to our final point and look at God's unique character Much detail is given to the cherubs in Ezekiel's uh, opening vision, right? It's the main chunk that we see. But even in that vision, even in this vision, God still shows his utterly unique character by separating himself from the angelic beings. The angelic beings merely carried or pulled the chariot, but they were never enthroned upon it. That was only for God. For all the great might that the chairs possess, they could never climb their way to the top of that platform. That platform belonged to the Lord. And this point is somewhat, uh, is, is important as we read the rest of the vision of Ezekiel and Ezekiel as a whole. By having this vision before him, by having the Almighty God rightly placed above the rest of his creation, Ezekiel and his audience should understand that any complaint that they may bring is completely rendered ridiculous at the outset. As we'll see in the coming weeks, even as you look at the beginning of chapter 2, the people are stubborn in exile, and they complain how God is treating them in the exile. But whenever a man, but whenever mankind brings a grievance against God of any kind, they should realize who they are bringing this grievance against. For Ezekiel, he saw the glory of God, and he is trying to show us that any response to him should only be worship, fear, or reverence. Anything less than that, let alone grumbling, is wholly improper. For the saint of God. So with this obvious point stated, I want us to think about this. The vision we are seeing is highly influenced by the Old Testament tabernacle and all the wilderness wanderings. I I hope I made this point clear. And if not, please come and see me. Ezekiel's vision reveals what had always been inside the glory cloud of the Old Testament. 
All Ezekiel is doing here is making explicit what was already implicit in earlier Old Testament passages. Here's what I mean. Every time that the glory cloud was over the tabernacle or the temple, choose, choose what, uh, either one, we are, are to understand that this glorious vision of God, God's war chariot protected by His host of cherubic beings, was right there. This vision is surrounded by the glory cloud, and the glory cloud was the standard indicator of God's presence with Israel. But the people did not always see this. So in his vision, Ezekiel is explaining to us in precise detail what has always been inside the cloud. This vision of God that Ezekiel is describing is the same God that was with them at Mount Sinai. This God is the same God with them in the wilderness. This is the same God who is in God who dwelt with the people in the temple at Jerusalem. Wherever God's earthly footstool was, wherever the ark was, His heavenly throne attended it, and His chariot was right there. And we should understand that God was always present in this kingly regalia. And uh, as we read this in Ezekiel's vision, we should see this. We should infer back to the Old Testament passages that God in this glorious vision has always been there, though it hasn't always been revealed. So if this is the case, brothers... Alarms need to be going off in our heads. And here's why. If this vision is God's full display that lay behind the glory cloud in the Old Testament of all the instances that we see, and the glory cloud over the ark was the sign of God's blessing over Israel, what in the world is God doing in Babylon? Why is God here? Why is He and His glory cloud, why is His full presence here in Babylon? Why is it not in Jerusalem where it's supposed to be? The answer is unfortunately another sign of judgment. It is as we said in the past weeks, God has forsaken Jerusalem and Judah. Their sin was great and His departure was the beginning stages of a great line of judgments that would punish his people over and over and over again. But this is important, brothers. Even in light of the calamity that will be detailed in the coming chapters, we should still see this silver lining and this glorious silver lining at this. The mere fact that God comes to his people in exile is just as astounding as his departure from Judah. Though it is troubling that God is no longer in Judah and that God seems to be armored for war against Judah and the exiles themselves, it would still be a bomb to Ezekiel to know that God would still come to bless His people with His presence. We should still see God's grace in this vision even though He's armed for warfare, armed for warfare even against Judah. We should still see grace. So this brings us to our third and final point, God's throne and the rainbow. In verses 26 to 28, we get somewhat of a a reprieve in the picture of God's glory. But before that, we, we, we do see that the cherubim and the chariot are to appropriately terrify Ezekiel and his audience, as it should us. In fact, it was God, by speaking from above the expanse, Him in control, Him dictating the terms, that He was above the expanse, He was on top of His throne, that the cherubim and the chariot moved. It was God who spoke and His Spirit would move the glory cloud, the cherubim and the chariot along with it. So God is in absolute control of this battle-ready chariot and His angelic army. Also in this final section, we see God depicted as surrounded by great light and flames, which is evocative of the glory cloud of old. The glory cloud is depicted throughout the Old Testament as shooting out flame and lightning. And we've already touched on some of this imagery, the gleaming metal and the fire. It's all evocative of the sacrificial system with the lights and the blazing torches for sacrifices. It's all evocative. And the sacrificial system was supposed to evoke awe and fear in the hearts of His people. 
So this is a terror-inducing vision, brothers and sisters. But with these last few moments, I want us to look at two descriptions that give us a reprieve from this terrifying vision. God's throne and the light that shone all around it. God's throne is described as having an appearance of sapphire. And sapphire is used in another prominent appearance of God in the Old Old Testament. In Exodus 24, Israel confirms their covenant with Yahweh. Moses, and, and so Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 other elders went up to Mount Sinai to confirm the covenant as representatives for the people. And when they did, all of them, Moses, Nadab, Abihu, Aaron, and 70, they saw, and the text says this, they saw the God of Israel. And in Exodus 24, verse 10, Moses tells us that, there was under his feet, under God's feet, as it were, pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. The word for pavement is evocative of the tile work that would be in ancient throne rooms. So even in Exodus 24, we see God uh, is displaying himself in kingly fashion to communicate that he was Israel's covenant king and lord. So when Israel alludes to this in his vision, this sapphire, we should be reminded of God's covenant with his people. That was a blessed day in the history of Israel. In that same account in Exodus 24, after they confirmed the covenant, Moses and all the other rulers ate a meal before the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, this is an act of communion with the living God. It was a sign of God's mercy and grace to his covenant people. They had communion and fellowship with their God. But back to the vision, we also see a reference to the bow in the sky. The vision of God was blurred by his bright and fiery depiction. And you can even see in the English translation how Ezekiel was struggling to make out some of the details because God was so bright and blinding. But he's able to make out that the light made a rainbow-like effect that surrounded the divine person. The rainbow evokes the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9, right? After God had finished destroying his enemies in the flood, he set the bow in the sky as a sign of promise to abstain from cataclysmic judgment. So we see with this reference in the other of the Sinai fellowship, God is presented as the gracious and merciful king of Israel. He is the God who can rightfully judge His people because He is King. But He is also the God that communes with His people and graciously preserves His people despite, despite their sin. As I said some weeks ago, the book of Ezekiel follows a fairly simple outline. Judgment, then blessing. This description of God follows the overall outline and gives us a visual picture of what will be spoken in the coming chapters. In this way, the throne that is arrayed with the rainbow effect is a reminder of God's benevolence benevolence and gracious character. Though there will be a great judgment to God, a, a, a great judgment to come, and God will be victorious over His people, we must always remember that this is not, that our God is not merely vindictive Or he's not a malicious deity. No. It's not our God. Our God is both just in his his judgment and gracious in character. Just as he relented from his punishment in Noah's day, and just as he communed with Israel at Sinai, our God is doing something similar in the book of Ezekiel. God will relent from his punishment, and he will not utterly destroy his people. And the reason is that he wants to commune again with his people. And brothers and sisters, that people that he wishes to commune with, that becomes us. In 1 Corinthians 10, I wasn't going to mention this, but I think it's important. They talk, God, uh, the Apostle Paul talks a good bit about judgment and how these things happen for them. I think there's a natural connection to be made here. Is that that judgment happened as a warning, yes. But it was also to show us the immense glory of God's 
graciousness and mercy to sinners just like us. Brothers, this is the God we serve. This is the God in display before Ezekiel. Verse 28, after seeing this vision of God's glory and the likeness of His glory, Ezekiel falls upon his face, which is a sign of worship. Ezekiel knew who he was beholding, and he understood the significance of what he was beholding. He wasn't scratching his head at this. He knew what he was seeing. As I said at the beginning of the sermon, that though this is a glorious and outstanding depiction of God, it should sound familiar to us. Because Ezekiel was such a trained priest and a skilled reader of the Old Testament, he was able to see the glory of God for what it really was and how it communicated both terror as well as hope. Brothers, I know that I made a lot of quick allusions from across the Old Testament, and some of this still may be a bit obscure. But the reason I want us to connect the dots between this is that because the Torah and Ezekiel's vision are meant to be connected, but more importantly is that the New Testament sees what Ezekiel is doing here. As we'll see as we go through the study, the New Testament loves Ezekiel. They love him. And as we go through our study, I want us to attempt to to be better readers of the Old Testament so that we can better understand the glorious realities of the New Testament, so that we can better worship the God before us presented in the New Testament. This chapter ends with Ezekiel on his face in worship. Brothers, how much more should we be prostrate in worship when we know and behold Christ through faith? And we know that when our faith becomes sight in the new heavens and the new earth, that we will bow in worship and laud of the great vision of our God in our midst. Brothers, make no mistake. We don't read Ezekiel just to check it off the list. Some sermon list that we preachers come up with. It's nothing like that. We read this book with Scripture-saturated lenses so that we might know more of the glory that will be revealed to us on that great last day. Brothers, this is the reason we study Ezekiel. This is why we go into the details. That's why we get a little bit of obscure passages so that we can scratch at them. And it's by scratching at them, by digging deeper, by going further, by understanding the illusions, by taking the time to work with the text. It's then that we arise in the presence of our God. Brothers, may we busy ourselves knowing more and more of our God through His Word so that we might delight and worship all the more when our Christ returns. When we see Christ on that last day, may we know who it is. May we not be like the disciples who did not see Christ in his glorified uh, body. May we be as those who know Christ by faith on that day, because we know what to expect. Great judgment for those who oppose him, but great hope, honor, and laud for those who love him. Brothers, let us behold our God, and let us understand in fuller measure what we will behold in glory. Brothers, let us pray.